And I'm thankful for you being here today. We're so glad to have you with us as we continue on in our epic 11-part message series that we're calling Rediscovering Jesus. And that's what we're doing. For those of you who are new to Jesus, you're going to meet him for the first time. If you've heard some stories about Jesus in your past, we're going to hear those stories again, perhaps in a fresh light. And as I mentioned last week, one of the things that we Christians are infamous for doing is taking what really happened to Jesus, cleaning it up a little bit, sanding down the rough edges, and then presenting a sanitized version of Jesus for your consideration and for your consumption, right? And so we're undoing all that. We're attempting to undo that and look at the real Jesus, the historic Jesus, the biblical Jesus, get a sense of what he actually said what he actually did, what he actually accomplished, and we're not going to pull any punches. At least that's our goal. We're not going to hold back on what actually happened with Jesus. And so last week we started out our series, and by the way, if you missed any of these, you can catch up online on our website. Uh, Last week we started off the series talking about Jesus' opening act, right? God was doing this big thing, creating a big change. He was bringing, you know, Jesus was bringing this big old change into the world, such a big dramatic change that God sent an opening act to prepare the way for Jesus. And John the Baptist was that opening act. He did prepare the way for Jesus. And so we talked about John the Baptist last week and all that went on there. And so John's preparing the people for this new radical thing that God is doing. He's bringing this message of repentance in order for the forgiveness of sins, which is a message that just makes sense and it's true. That what God actually values is true heart repentance in order to be forgiven and restored. And so that's what God's about. That's the message that John brought. That's the message that Jesus continued. And so John came into this world preparing the way for Jesus. And all of a sudden, one day, Jesus shows up. The Messiah, the Son of God, is there. And how does John introduce the Messiah? This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we have this moment where Jesus is baptized and say, like, what's going to happen next? Is he going to start to preach? Is he going to perform some miracles? What's he going to do? Is he going to lead a whole bunch of people and they're going to march to the temple and tell them what's up? What's happening next? So Jesus just kind of disappears. In fact, Scripture tells us from that point he's led by the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit out into the desert to be tempted. So that's what we're talking about today, how Jesus was tempted. We'll talk all about the wonderful topic of Temptation. Doesn't that sound like a lot of fun today? Temptation. Aren't you glad you spent your holiday weekend with us? Talking about temptation. Now here's something, <clears throat> here's something you may have noticed about temptation. Whenever you're tempted to do something, it's never something selfless, is it, right? That's not what temptation is about. You're never tempted like, oh, you know what, I should really give money to the poor or help some. That's not a temptation, right? Whenever you're tempted to do something, and this, you already know this, whenever you're tempted to do something, you're tempted to act selfishly, right? Selfishness and temptation go hand in hand. And that's not how it is when you're thinking about being selfless. When you're talking about being selfless, maybe you might be encouraged to be selfless. You might be, you know, uh, challenged or even convicted. You feel like, oh, I really got to do something here. You might even feel inspired to do something selfless. But when it comes to temptation, you're always tempted to do something self-centered and selfish, right? Some of you are even writing that down. That's so, why are you writing that down? You know that already, right? It's always around something selfish. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is a silly little example. I know it's silly. I'm going to tell you a story of how I fell to temptation, okay? You ready for this? I'm not going to tell you anything serious because I don't know some of you out there. I don't, I'm not sure if I trust all you. I don't know. Well, I'm going to give you a silly example, okay? Here's a silly little thing that happened a few weeks ago. This is so, so ridiculous. I can't believe I'm admitting this. A few weeks ago, I got a coupon in the mail for Burger King. I was like, I haven't Burger King in like... 15 years. Look at this deal I can get. I'm going to go spend some money. I'm going to go treat myself. I'm going to go get some, some lunch at Burger King. And so I used that coupon, and I, fe- I just felt dirty the whole time. I felt wrong about it. 
and I went into the fast food line. I'm there in my car. I'm like, ooh, what am I going to do? And I was like, I don't even know how to order with a coupon. I was like, I've got a coupon for a sandwich. And a Can I use that? Is that? Would that be acceptable at this time? Is that okay? So anyway, I get my food, and it's what? It was like a five-buck coupon or whatever it is. I didn't want to mess out on that life-saving, life-changing opportunity. So anyway, I do the thing, feel dirty about it, get home, eat it, instant regret. Instant regret. Now, I'm here to tell you that not all fast food is created equally, okay? And I don't know what is up with the Burger King, all due respect to his majesty, but whatever he's putting in those chicken sandwiches and fries just did not agree with me. And I thought, what a foolish thing for me to do. I didn't need to spend that five bucks. That's called non-essential spending. I got food in the refrigerator. You know what I mean? And listen, you can treat yourself to like a lunch out or whatever. I'm just saying, it was not wise. It was foolish, and I instantly regretted it, and I felt it, right? And here's the weird thing about selfishness. Here's the weird thing about acting on these temptations and doing this selfish stuff. Whenever you act on temptation, whenever you fall to temptation and act selfishly, you always, always, always end up hurting yourself. Always. Not always instantly, right? It's not always like, oh, I got a boo-boo tummy after eating. No, it's not, like, it's not always instant, right? But eventually, you end up hurting yourself. When you fall to temptation, when you act selfishly, on a long enough timeline, you end up hurting yourself. Now, here's the other thing about falling to temptation, okay? Giving in to foolishness. Or can I use the term sin with you all? Are you comfortable with that as Christians? Or sinning against God's will, right? When we sin, here's how we would like it to work. Here's how we would like it to work. Okay, if an individual sins, then they receive all the punishment for their sin, and that's just how it is. When an individual sins, we want them to receive the punishment, and, that, and, that, and that's it. That's not how it works, is it? When a person sins, you end up hurting yourself and also others. And the bigger the sin, the more people are hurt by that. That's the tough news, right? And it's just the reality. The bigger the sin, the more people are hurt by it. The bigger the act of selfishness, the more people are hurt by it. The bigger the fall into temptation, the more people are hurt by it. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. The greater the act of selflessness, the more people benefit from that. That's the good news, and that's what we're going to see in the life of Jesus. And so Jesus is baptized, and he's led out to be tempted. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 4. If you've got a Bible with you, or it's on your phone, or somehow you can look that up, Matthew chapter 4. So this basically picks up where we left off last week. And here's what we discover. Then, so this is after the baptism thing. Then, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, it's always dangerous to just casually bring up the devil in a setting because I know we're all coming from different backgrounds and we have different ideas about the devil and Satan and all this, and some people maybe think that's just like a folklore, it's kind of like a boogeyman type thing, and we all have different feelings and perspectives, but here's the reality. For those of us who believe what the Bible says to be true, there is a devil. There is one called the evil one, the enemy, that ancient serpent, the father of lies. He's the deceiver. It's real. There is an enemy out there, he does exist. He is the devil. Okay, We're not talking about some guy in red pajamas and a pitchfork. We're talking about an actual enemy of God. In fact, Peter describes him not only as God's enemy, but as your enemy. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's your enemy too. And so here's what we need to know. Again, like, I've thought about doing this like, over the past six years. Should we do like a series where we talk about that? It just feels weird to talk about the devil for an extended period of time. But we do need to know our enemy. Here's what we need to know about him. Here's what we need to know about him. God's on one mission. Satan's on an opposite mission. God, as we mentioned last week, he's on a redemptive mission in this world. He wants to save people. He wants to restore relationships. He wants to reconcile people to God. That's what he's all about. It's a life-saving mission. 
Satan wants the opposite. Satan wants to derail that whole mission of God. He wants to keep people away from God. He does not want to see people restored into a perfect relationship with God. He does not want to people see, he does not want to see people accept Christ as their Savior, right? And so I'll tell you this about the devil. He doesn't mind that you're here today. He doesn't mind your acts of religion. He doesn't mind you singing songs. What he does not want to see is you accept Christ as your Savior. Bada bing, bada boom. That's him in a nutshell, okay? And so that's the devil. And so why did God set this up? It's like you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is leading the Son into the wilderness. So God is leading God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And here's how this plays out. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, this is Jesus we're talking about, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And that might seem like the most obvious sentiment in the world. Why? Like, of course he was hungry after 40 days and 40 nights. But the reason, I believe the reason that Matthew has taken the time to actually commit this to paper is because it's important for us to know that Jesus, as human being, as a human being, was hungry, right? Because you might think, well, he's God, and so he's, like, exempt from certain things. No, he put limitations on himself, and so he experienced hunger, Right? Anybody, anybody skip breakfast this morning, right? Anybody walk in like, where are the snacks? I'm so hungry. He experienced real hunger after fasting for, what was it, four days? Oh, no, 40 days. And so there he is. So a lot of people tell you, well, that can't be done. Um, what do we say back to that? Well, with God, all things are possible. So you might want to jot that down. All right, there you go. So anyway, he's, being, he's in the desert. He's fasting for 40 days. The tempter, and so this is the devil. Another name is the tempter. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. A few things to point out about this, okay? And so the devil is saying, if. That doesn't mean that Satan is unsure whether or not this guy, I'm not sure if you're the son of God or not. No. Satan knows for a fact that the one he is speaking with is God the son. He knows this. And so it's more like he's saying, well, since you're the son of God, or another way to think of it is like this, right? You could say this to somebody. Well, Listen, if, if you're the boss of the company, then give yourself a day off, right? You're entitled to it. If you're the boss, take what you're entitled to, right? And that's exactly what Satan is doing. Well, if you're the son of God, then tell the stone to become bread. You know, why not? You're entitled to it. And here's what we're going to see, and this is so significant. With each one of these three temptations, and we don't know exactly how many temptations we were. We just know that three are listed here in the Bible. Maybe there are more, maybe not. I don't know. But here's what we'll see with each one of these temptations. The devil is tempting to give Jesus something that he is, listen, legitimately entitled to. This isn't like something that he doesn't know. Well, Jesus doesn't deserve. No, he legitimately is entitled to have some bread. Give me, give me a break. This is Jesus who before he was born as Jesus was part of God. He's with God from before the beginning. And through Jesus, all things were created. Are you telling me that he is not legitimately entitled to some bread? Of course he is. And so Satan says, well, listen, if you're the boss, act like the boss. If you're the creator, create something. Feed yourself. You're entitled to it. How does Jesus respond? Now, this is significant to note about Jesus. He is, and Andy Stanley makes this point for those of you who are going through the series throughout the week, um, watching the 90s series, Andy Stanley makes this point, that Jesus serves as a bridge between the old covenant and the new covenant. And so what you see Jesus doing is he quotes from Scripture, he quotes from the law, he quotes from Moses, he uses the Word of God to defend himself and to explain his position. And so here's what Jesus says, verse 4, chapter 4 of Matthew. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy. And how do I know? 
because I got a little note in my Bible that tells me that, okay? It's not because I went to Bible college or seminary or anything. I got a little note in my Bible that reminds me, oh, that's from Deuteronomy. Now, here's a fun thing. Some of you are reading through the Bible chronologically in a year, and you read about Moses and all that he did and all the laws that he gave. So this was something that Moses had originally told the people. And so Moses is talking to the people, and all this stuff is written down. And Moses is talking about how the people were, were slaves in Egypt, and then God freed them, and then God gave them manna from heaven. He gave them bread from heaven. He's talking about how God humbled you in this way and, and, and really caused you to be obedient. And you realize that when you were obedient to God, he provided you with manna in heaven, manna from heaven. And so that's the point that Moses was making. And so here's Jesus referring to the words of Moses, which are ultimately from God. And so how about that? Nice and confusing. Well, let's move on. And so that's, that's what Jesus says. Because he could have said, you know what, Satan, you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm entitled to some bread, bada bing, done. But if he would have done that, he would have been acting selfishly, right? He would have been satisfying a physical desire. This is one of the ways that we human beings are tempted to satisfy physical desires. Now, we can talk about food because that's a safe one to talk about, right? But there are other physical desires that we human beings have, right? Should we talk about those? Now, it's not. Some other day when there aren't kids here, right? We can talk about that. But that's a temptation to satisfy a physical desire. Is that a sign? Am I saying something wrong? Like, uh. Anyway, so I meant for that to happen, by the way. Anyway, so to satisfy a physical desire, that would have been acting selfishly. And so Jesus says, no, I can't do that because he has been commanded by Father God. And again, they're all the same. You're all God. Why do you got to follow Father God's commands? You're God too and the Spirit's God. We all, aren't you all on the same page? He is obeying Father God and Father God has told him, go fast. He would have been submitting himself to Satan, giving into temptation and acting selfishly. He was not going to, I know it feels like, I'm, like we get it already, Pastor. Come on, let's move on. He was not going to use his own might and his own strength and his own power. He was not going to leverage that for his own sake. Got it? Let's go to the next one. Then the devil took him, took Jesus, to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And so how did they get there? And some people think it was like a magic, ooh, done, and then all of a sudden they're there. I think they just walked there, right? They just kind of, they left the desert, and they walked there, and that, that's just a weird thing to think about, that there's Jesus, the Son of God, and Satan walking to the temple of God. At this point, nobody knew Jesus. He was a face in the crowd. I mean, some people may have recognized him. Isn't that the guy that John said was the Lamb of God? I don't know. We all kind of look the same. We all have beards and sandals. I don't know. And so they're walking to the temple. I don't know what, how Jesus, I don't know how Satan looked. Maybe he was manifested as a human being. I don't know. I don't know. They get to, it doesn't matter. They get to the temple. They go to the highest point of the temple. Chapter 4, verse 6. Here's what Satan says. If you are the boss, and you are, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Just, just jump off this. Just jump off from this point. Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Did you know that the devil, he can quote Scripture with the best of them. Did you know that? He knows it. He probably knows it better than me. Probably knows it better than all of us. What's he got? Nothing but time to read this and study this and figure out how do I, how do I, how do I undermine this? And so here's what Satan is doing. He's doing something 
that modern day, quote unquote, Bible teachers, pastors, preachers, okay, I'm doing air quotes for those of you listening online, okay? He's doing something that modern, so many modern day preachers are doing right now in this very moment, taking the Word of God, twisting it, and putting it out there to advance their own personal agenda. What Satan quotes here has nothing to do with the circumstances that he and Jesus, or this whole temptation thing, and throw yourself, no, it has nothing to do with that. Satan is quoting from Psalm 91. Again, how do I know that? It's in the notes, right? <laughs> Quoting from Psalm 91. Now, here's, here's a little interesting fact. David wrote most of the Psalms, but Psalm 90, 91 was probably written by Moses. Isn't that interesting? So we're going back and forth with Moses, who was like, that's, that's their patriarch. He was the, the guy who brought the law. It's Moses. And so Satan's quoting from Moses. Said, Listen, this is what Moses said, right? Just, he's going he's gonna to send his angels. They're going to protect you. Contextually, if you read Psalm 91, it's not about that. It's not about putting God to the test. It's not about any of that. It's more about, Psalm 91 is about trusting in God and how when we trust in God, He will take care of us. That's what it's about. And so how does Jesus respond to that? How about some more Moses? Does that sound good? It seems like we're sticking with Moses here. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, that's from Deuteronomy. Don't do that. This is not what this is about. So what's the real temptation there for Jesus? Jesus, if you jumped off this thing, and some angels swooped down and caught you and lowered you to the ground, you would get everybody's attention. You would get everybody's attention. I mean, Jesus, aren't you here to become a public figure and a savior or whatever or a messiah or whatever? Like, you can get everybody's attention. You could get everybody's recognition. If you just did this, you would get instant fame. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, Jesus? Go around in these little towns teaching people in small group settings, right? What are you going to do? Hull around in people's homes and perform miracles and do that? Come on. Let's get this over with. You want people to recognize you as the Son of God? Jump off this thing and show everybody who you are. Instant fame. It's another way that human beings are tempted. You might feel like, well, that's not me. I don't want, I don't want fame. Well, I'm not like that. Recognition. You more comfortable with that term? How about just Attention. Goodness gracious, we all crave it. Can we do, why, why does social media even exist? Because we crave it. Let me take this picture of myself and put it out there. Well, I got some likes. You know, we, we want it. We want that attention. We want the likes. We want somebody to like us. We want somebody to recognize us, to give us it. And listen, if we can't get any of that, well, at least feel sorry for us, right? That's how human beings are. If I can't get your respect or your recognition, at least feel sorry for me. That's something. I'll take it if I can get it. That's how human beings are. It's how we are. I'm sorry. Like, I don't want to be that way, but that's how we are. But here's something I remember. A while ago, I heard a brilliant pastor named Sean Howitt, and he gave a sermon. He gave a sermon called Audience of One. And the whole point of that is if you want some kind of recognition or if you're trying to perform for an audience, the audience should be God. So Jesus did not come to receive testimony from human beings about who he is. Jesus valued who he is and was in God's sight. This is not, and this is just interesting. How many times did Jesus try to prove that he was the son of God? Do you know how many times he tried to prove it to people? According to my reckoning, zero. He wasn't here to prove himself. Why was he got to prove himself to us, right? He even says, I don't need human being testimony. He doesn't have to prove anything. He just is. He is God and he does what God does. And so Jesus says, no, I'm not doing that. That's not part of God's plan, and so I'm not going to do it. We continue on again. 
Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and their wealth. Verse 9, all this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. So there's some questions here about this verse. What, hang on a second. What, how is Satan in a position where he could give all this to Jesus? Oh, wait, you're, gonna give, you're saying you can give all these, you can give all the world to Jesus. How is that? How, how did you get that? How did you get that power? Here's what's going on here. One of two things. One of two things. Either Satan is lying, and that, I mean, that's just, you know, you, you wouldn't be surprised if Satan was lying. He's the deceiver. He's the father of lies. He's lying, and it's not really his to give. So that's one option. Or it actually was within his power to give something to Jesus, some kind of authority, some kind of kingship over the world. Now, here's where we get into some of our misconceptions about Satan. Some people kind of see Satan as like the king of hell. He's not the king of hell. And some people think when Satan was cast out of heaven, he was cast down to hell. He wasn't. He was cast down to earth. And some people seem to believe that when Adam and Eve submitted themselves to Satan's authority, there was some kind of exchange that happened there, and Satan received some kind of authority over this world. And so that's one of the options, that Satan legitimately could give this to Jesus. He says, Jesus, you're here. Why are you here? You're here to become the king. Listen, Jesus, I've read the prophets. I know the deal. You're coming into this world to be a king over us all. Why don't we skip the cross stuff? Why don't we skip the pain stuff? Why don't we skip the salvation of humankind stuff? And I can give you kingship over it all. Just bow down, worship me. You don't got to make a big thing of it. Just, just bow down, worship me, and I'll give it to you. How is that similar to how we're tempted? What do we want? <laughs> we want the world? Do you want to be the king of the world? Leo DiCaprio, edge of the boat? You want worldly things? Worldly desires? Power, control, stability, financial security? Call it that if you want. There are worldly things. There are the things of God and there are things of this world. And Jesus was literally given this opportunity. You can have the world but you'd have to lose something in the process. You'd have to disobey God in the process. And what does Jesus say? Verse 10, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. Uh, exclamation point, by the way. I love this. I love this because here's the thing. Jesus, at any point, this is God, at any point could banish Satan from his midst. And this is the point that he does it. Away. Let's, let's not forget who's who here. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's it. No shortcuts. Jesus is not taking a shortcut to his kingship, to his authority over the earth, because if he took a shortcut, if he acted out of temptation, if he acted selfishly, guess what? We'd all be lost. No cross, no salvation, no hope. And so Jesus says, away from me, Satan. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. These are ways that we are tempted as well, to have these physical desires. Okay, I'm going to just act on this physical desire. Guess what? You're going to hurt yourself. These desires for recognition. Well, you might get the recognition, but guess what? It's fleeting. You might get the likes, but they're fleeting, and I got to put another picture out there. I got to do something else, or just tell me, tell me that I'm awesome and I'm pretty, or whatever it is, right? You might get that, but then it fades away, and you want more of it, and you can only find that truly satisfied in 
God. Same with these worldly things or any kind of wealth or power or status or control. You can get that, but then what happens when you get it? Is it ever enough? Does a person who's pursuing wealth ever say, you know what, I've got enough, this is good? Or does it become a driving force in their life? Jesus experienced, you need to know this, we need to know this. He experienced real temptation the temptation to be selfish, to act selfishly, to just think about your own, your own wants, your own needs, your own agenda. Take what you have, Jesus, and leverage it on your own behalf for your own sake. That's where Jesus was tempted. Later on, Jesus would meet with his disciples, and he'd teach them, and I'll take a look at that now, Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26. This is the reading in your Bible that Holly read for us. Did you guys know Holly's my wife? Have a round for Holly. Yay. Listen, if you ever become a pastor and if your wife reads the scripture, you can give her applause too. That's how that works, okay? But Jesus is meeting with his disciples and he's letting them know, here's, here's what's up, guys. If you're going to be my followers, if you're going to continue to be a part of this movement that I'm starting after I go, here's what's required of you. This is what this is going to look like. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must not act selfishly, must not give in to the temptation to satisfy some kind of selfish desire, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In our day and age, we use the cross symbolically and we say, oh, well, the cross is just your burden in life. We all have a cross to bear. No, 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 no. Back then, the cross meant one thing and one thing alone. Death. That's all. It wasn't a symbol back then. It was a means of execution. That's all it was. You have to deny yourself. You have to give up your life, whether that means literally or figuratively giving up your plans and your purpose and you, what you thought you were going to do, giving up self. And follow me. Verse 25 For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Verse 26, and here's, here's the thing about verse 26, okay? Have you ever heard, you've probably heard this. You've heard like preachers or teachers or whatever kind of talk to you about something in theory that they've really never experienced, right? You know what I mean? I'm sure I've done that over the years. They're kind of just preaching about something that they think is a good idea, but they've never felt it. They've never experienced it. They've never been through it. Jesus is about to talk on something that he knows. This is not theoretical. This is practical for Jesus. Here's what he says. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul. That is the exact position that Jesus was in when he was tempted by Satan. He could have gained the whole world but lost his soul in the process. Some translations say, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose yourself? The idea is this. You can fall for temptation. You can give in to selfishness, but you can lose yourself in the process. You can lose your God-given purpose in the process. Now, let's talk about you and how you face temptation and how you deal with temptation. Because here's what I know about you. Well, I know a few things about you. I know that you're not God, okay? I know you're not Jesus. I know that about you. But I also know that you have some things that are unique to you. You've got some wealth. You might not believe it. You might not feel it. Like, I got debt, not wealth, but I don't know. You've got some wealth. You know, when you look at it, consider it from a global perspective, you've got wealth. You've got stuff. You've got things. You've got clothes on your back. You, and it's yours, right? 
And guess what? You are entitled to use your stuff for personal gain. It's yours. You worked hard for it. Or even if you didn't work hard for it, even if you just inherited it, so somebody gave it to you, it's yours now. You've got some stuff, you've got some wealth, and you can take what you have and you can leverage it for your own sake or you can use what you have to help others. You can give in to the temptation of using what you have. I'm just going to better myself and build myself up and take care of myself and make sure I look out for number one. You can use whatever wealth you have, however much or however little, for personal gain or you can use it to help others. Here's what else I know about you. You're awesome. Go ahead. You're awesome at something or maybe multiple somethings. You've got talents. You've got gifts. You've got a gifting from God. You have a perspective on this world that no other human being has ever had. You see this world in a unique way. And, you're, and those of you who are young, you might not even know what your gifts, maybe if you're old too. You may not know, where am I gifted? You're gifted. Here's how you know how you're gifted. Let me just give you some practical advice. If you don't know how you're gifted, if something that just comes easy to you and you look around at other people like, why, why are you struggling with this? That's where you're gifted. You're gifted somewhere. What are you going to do with your gifts? I mean, maybe it's like, think of it in these terms. You've got an education. You received it. And other people, don't, other people haven't learned what you've learned. What are you going to do with your gifts with your education, with your perspective and your abilities? Are you going to take those gifts and pursue self-interest? Are you going to take with those gifts, take those gifts and leverage them for your own sake? Or are you going to use what you have for the sake of others? Here's what Jesus could have done. He could have taken all of his power, all of his ability, and used it for self-gain, but he gave it up for others. What are you going to do with what you have? This is the question. And here's what I need you to know. God did not put you on this earth to seek after stuff for yourself. There is a very sad story that has been played out countless times over the course of human history. You've heard the story. Maybe you've lived the story. Maybe you've seen the story. It's played out countless times throughout human history. It's the story of the person who pursues the world and loses themselves in the process, who pursues the stuff, whatever the stuff is, maybe it's not about money, maybe it's just about power, maybe it's about control, maybe it's about recognition. They pursue the worldly stuff and they forfeit their God-given purpose in the process. It's played out. Have you, heard, have you been to funerals like that? It's, it's heartbreaking. And they stand up, and they say nice things about the person, but what can they say? Oh, you know, he was a, yeah, it was a great golf game, <laughs> and he sure loved his cars, right? Oh, man, yeah. And how about what he did at work, and he climbed all the way to the top, and he started his own company? Wow, okay. And everybody just kind of nods their head. They're like, wait a minute, is that it? I'm telling you, this story has played out countless times over the course of human history. The person who has made it to the end of their days filled with two things, Fear and regret. Because here's what happens if you pursue worldly stuff. You might just get it. (laughs) You might just get it. It's like, man, if you pursue wealth, you might just get it. If you pursue stuff, you might just get it. If you pursue power, you might just get it. You pursue recognition or fame, you might just get it. Then what? You make it to the end of your days and say, I got exactly what I was seeking after, but I did not fulfill any kind of bigger purpose, any kind of God-given purpose. Don't let that be your story. However young, however old, whatever age you are, don't lose yourself 
and the pursuit of worldly stuff. God, this is, this is it. This is something that we firmly believe here at Hope Community Church. God has given each one of us a purpose to fulfill in this world. And that purpose doesn't have a whole lot to do with you. It has to do with him. And it's not about securing yourself or achieving stuff for yourself. It's about doing what God has put you on this earth to do. And I know one of the things that God has put you on this earth to do is to share the message of salvation with other people, to help other people who are in need, to have those tough conversations with people when you need to have them. God has put you on this earth for a reason. And whatever that is, your purpose ties into the mission of God. And God's mission on this earth, like I keep saying, it's a rescue mission, a mission of redemption. Don't get sidelined by the pursuit of worldly things. No, pursue them and forfeit your soul. The good news, as I mentioned earlier, <laughs> is that when we act selflessly, when we, when we deny ourselves and we act selflessly, we can have a profoundly positive impact on other people. Now, of course, Jesus, the, the scale that he exemplified this is huge, Right? He gave up everything. He sacrificed everything. He gave up his life on, for us on the, on the cross. And if he hadn't have done that, we wouldn't be able to receive salvation, right? You can't die for somebody else's sake. It's not going to work that way. But you can give of yourself for the sake of others, for the sake of introducing others to Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to be about as a church, living into our purpose that God has given us, not pursuing selfish stuff, but living into our God-given purpose. That's who we need to be as Hope Community Church. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you for all that you have done for us. And, and Jesus, we thank you for what you have taught us and what you lived through and what you experienced and what you shared with us. And Jesus, you know, you know intimately how difficult it is to be human. You know our weakness. You know how we're tempted. And Jesus, what we see in you is how we should combat temptation with the word of God. Father God, all of us in this room, we want to live out our God-given purpose. We want to do the thing in this world that you've created us to do. We don't want to lose ourselves in pursuit of the world. Father God, I ask right now that you would please come to us. Clarify for each one of us what it is you have commanded us to do on this planet. Give us a sense of clarity and direction as individuals, as families, and as your church. We want to do the very things you have created us to do. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.